So we've actually finished the Ezra part of Ezra and Nehemiah, and we're moving forward, but the story is kind of continuing. There's going to be a jump in time, um, about 12 years. It's going to jump from when, when we last saw Ezra and we get to Nehemiah. Um, some things, you know, have changed over time, but some things have stayed the same. Um, it seems like the problem of syncretism you know, was dealt with to a certain level, but it's still there. The sin is still there. Uh, the walls of Jerusalem, they may have been attempted to be rebuilt, maybe not, but we know at this point they're gone. They're not there anymore. And, you know, again, we're not talking about, like, for us. Like, for us, we get impatient when we don't see things happening in weeks and months. This has been decades Decades. Easy to see like, oh, there's no progress. Maybe there was hope when Ezra and the 5,000 showed up. But then it seems like, you know, things just aren't happening. And, and it's hard. It's hard for us. It's hard for a leader. You know, we have, you know, I, I love the American system of government. But four years even eight years, you know, it's not a lot of time. And we get impatient, you know. I mean, you know, whenever a new president starts, it's like, you know, what they do in the first hundred days. It's like, really? We're in that much of a rush. You know, hundred days. We don't give, you know, things time to happen. You know, even like in churches, you know, we talked about this before, how there's this huge turnover among, among pastors. 18 months. 18 months, either the pastor has given up on the church or the church has given up on the pastor. And there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of pressure to like produce results and, you know, and not just results, but visible, quantifiable results. We want to be able to say, like, you know, look at us. Look at what's happening. What are, what, look at what we're doing. And it's hard. It's hard because we don't always understand that things take time. Um, I don't know how many of you are garden-type people, but if you're a garden-type person and and you understand this, then you would realize this would be really dumb to do if you planted a garden and every day you went and dug up the seeds to see how they're growing, right? Because, you know, you want to see the progress. You don't want to wait days, weeks, sometimes longer. You know, I remember when my dad planted a, you know, I think it was an, an apple tree, and I loved apples when I was growing up. And he planted the apple tree, and I had this vision that we're going to have apples just raining, you know. <laughs> but I don't think we were there long enough in that house to see the apple tree ever produce one apple. Because it takes time. These things take time. And, and we, we sometimes get impatient, and when we don't see, like, the, the change that we think we want to we want to go a different way we want to give up we want to find a new leader 
when all we're really doing is taking those healthy seeds as they're growing and killing them as we look at them. We often think nothing's happening because it looks like nothing's happening. And so people become discouraged. We become discouraged when results just aren't coming as soon as we would like them. And, you know, that becomes, that becomes a struggle because, you know, what do you do with that? What do you do when you're not seeing the results that you think you should see? Again, sometimes people will get discouraged. And if you add to that, what if you're facing opposition? You're getting not opposition just from inside of discouragement, but opposition from the outside. It's a big struggle. A lot of effort. You could interpret what's happening between Ezra and Nehemiah as though Ezra's failed. Ezra came in with this 5,000 people. They were all the leaders. You know, he, he started getting things going. And, and you could say that he failed. But he's not pictured as failing. As a matter of fact, he's going to show up still as a leader at the end of Nehemiah. He's not pictured as failing. He's pictured as having done his part. Paul writes something like this in, in the New Testament where he, he talks about, you know, you know, some people plant, some people water, some people reap. We don't all do the same things. But oftentimes we, we judge ourselves or we judge other people by how much they reap. How much visible evidence can we see of their success? Sometimes we're just called to, to fix what was broken. Sometimes we're just called to help people get ready for what's about to come. And sometimes we get to see it all and we get to do it all. Now, Ezra's not a failure. Ezra's doing his part. He's being faithful. And we just have to understand, like, you know, you don't think, like, that's weird. No, we're weird. We're the weird ones. We're the weird ones who think that one human being can come into a situation and take it through all the levels of development it needs to be at. You know, if you come to like a, a broken, hurting church, you know, what kind of leader do you need in that church? That would be different from the leader of a healthy church. That would be different from the leader of, of the church that's just a bunch of brand new Christians. That would be the difference, you know, that, that would be a different leader that, that where a church is ready for that next level of commitment and vision and they're ready to go into to, to new lands and, and just take on new challenges. And God does bless some leaders with the ability to make that shift and that transition. But those are the exceptions. But we expect that. And so we think it's weird 
if Ezra does one part and Nehemiah comes along and does the other. It's not weird. It's biblical. Did Moses finish the job? Moses, this great leader who, you know, we as Christians, uh, you know, Jewish people look back to as like one of the heroes of the faith. Did he finish the job? No. He got the people from Egypt. He got them right there, you know, just right over the river. Cross the river. He never crosses the river. Doesn't finish the job. Joshua has to come along and finish the job. When there's this movement towards Israel becoming established more as a kingdom, does David finish the job? No. Doesn't finish the job. In terms of actually conquering and taking over all the lands that had been promised to them, it's Solomon who has to finish that job. What about Jesus? Did Jesus finish the job? Well, in a sense you can say yes. But in another sense... Jesus does his part and then he ascends to heaven and he says the Holy Spirit is coming upon the church. Don't tell me like, oh, you know, but that's God and Trinity. Yes, I know that. Come to our conference. I'll prove it that I know it. But, but understand the way that it's pictured in the Bible. It's not that. And in fact... Not just the Holy Spirit, because Jesus says, I'm leaving, I'm sending the Holy Spirit. But he also says, I'm leaving and I'm commissioning you, apostles. You're going to finish the job. It's not weird. It's biblical. We even see Paul. When Paul's going out, we don't hear about these people as much, but almost Every time you read the word, you know, the name Paul in the Bible, he's never alone except once. The only time in the Bible that he's alone is when he's in Corinth. I mean, I'm sorry, when he's in Athens. When he's in Athens, he's kind of there by himself and he's waiting for, you know, his missionary companions to join him. You see, we've idealized leadership as being like that one sole leader that we all are going to follow and they can do everything for us and meet all of our needs. It's not what the Bible presents. Ezra's not a failure. But I could certainly see why people would have thought like, Ezra... You came in with all that big talk. It's been 12 years. Wall still broken. Syncretism still happening. What have you done? Well, in God's time, Nehemiah is going to come. Nehemiah 
You know, he hears about the Jewish exiles. He hears about that, their situation. It's, it, it's, it's still a problem to the point that some of them are discouraged and despair. And Nehemiah, whose name means the Lord comforts, is feeling like he wants to go and bring that comfort. He's held up as, as an example. And so as we learn about Nehemiah, we're not just learning about what he did. We're looking at who he, who he was. Because he is an example for us to follow and not surprisingly, his example is very consistent with the example we see in Jesus Christ. So it says in Nehemiah 1, Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, Susa and Hanani, sounds like very local names, yeah? Hey, my friend Hanani Susa. Um, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem, and they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So he gets this report. He's in Susa. Susa is like, in our terminology, it's like the first world. It's the city where all the, you know, and the, at that time, modern technologies, all the luxuries, all the advantages are. And he's hearing about the Jewish exiles who've returned to this, to this place, this place that, you know, it, it was destroyed a century earlier. And there's been some, you know, rebuilding of it, but it's, it's still a long way from being a finished work. And he hears about it, and he immediately shows his connection to his, these, these people because he shares their burden. See, that's what God's people do. God's people share one another's burdens. It's, it's, if we're really a community of faith, if we're really the body of Christ, we share one another's burdens Sharing means we don't just feel bad for people. We don't just, oh, my heart goes out to them. No. We, we genuinely care to the point that he is weeping. He is mourning. He's fasting and praying. Remember, he doesn't know these people. The group that... The 5,000 left 12 years before. You know, he might, have, he might have known Ezra. He might have known some of these people. But the vast majority of these people, they're like descendants of the first group that went. Never seen them. And yet they're his people. 
There's people, and he's just broken for them. To the point of, for days, fasting and praying. Paul gives us kind of the positive picture of this, of, of what this looks like in 1 Corinthians 12 when he's, when he's actually writing to a very broken church. This is a church that's broken in a different sense. They're not broken because they're in despair. They're broken because they're full of pride and arrogance. And they're broken because they keep dividing up because of that pride and arrogance. And Paul's giving them this very strong, powerful, you know, healthy positive picture of what they're supposed to be and he says in chapter 12 he says but God has so composed the body he's talking about the body of Christ the church giving greater honor to the part that lacked it hmm all of you who think you're so important notice this is what God does God takes the part that lacks honor and he gives that honor that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. See, the way of the world is that we, we often help those who, who, you know, someday may help us. You know, if you were driving down the road and you saw somebody changing a flat tire, you didn't know who they were. If we're honest, most of us, in most situations, would drive on by. But what if you were driving along and you recognized, that's Bill Gates. <clears throat> oh, can I help you? Right? At least maybe I'm going to get a free laptop out of this. Or, you know, you know, who's, you know, who would make you stop? A lot of us, you know, if we're honest, would, would do that. But Paul's saying, no, 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 no. We care for everybody. We don't just care for the people in the church who can help us, who are helping us. Care about them, but you care about everyone else from those that would seem least in the eyes of the world to those that would seem the most important in the eyes of the world. Care about them all. In fact, he says, have the same care for one another. And then he continues, he says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. It's how connected, how united the body of Christ should be. If one of you is hurting, I don't, again, just feel sorry for you. I actually hurt too. We bear one another's burdens. But there's the positive side too. When you have joy, when you have victories, when you have success, I share in that joy. I don't just feel happy for you. 
I feel joy because in some sense, this is what we're accomplishing. This is what we are doing. You know, your you know, level of contribution might have been different. You know, we, we, we see like, you know, here in, um, you know, in, this, in this church, like last year we had, you know, James, James Reichel and, and he, you know, he went, you know, graduated from seminary and, and he, he became a chaplain. We ordained him. I wasn't there when apparently he was the handful kind of little bit rascal child that was in the kids' ministry. I wasn't there. But some of you were there. And if you invested in his life, sometimes not even directly, sometimes indirectly, that's, that's your accomplishment. It's, it's hard because we're so trained in our world to think of ourselves first, me first, what I've done first. We have to be reminded that who we are is a product of so many people feeding into our lives. And Paul is saying, no. If you're truly part of the body of Christ, if we have that healthy community that we're supposed to have, yeah, we share each other's burdens, but we also, also share each other's joy. And so we see Nehemiah, you know, several centuries before Paul will write what he writes, kind of showing us this. And it's hard, it's hard because when you don't have a healthy church, when you don't have a healthy community, one of the reasons we don't share burdens is because no one wants to tell you about what's going on in their lives. They don't want you to know for whatever reason. Sometimes it's just like, nah, you know, I don't want to bother anyone with my problems. I understand why people say that, but in the church it drives me crazy when people say that. We should want to be bothered by other people's problems. We should not be putting on this act of everything is okay in my life. I never feel lonely. I never feel afraid. I never am worried. Everything's good. Now, some people have no problem doing this, sometimes to the excess. And I think that's what happens is people see somebody who's always so needy, saying, and I don't want to be that person. You're not that person. But you're also not the person you're portraying. That self-sufficient, independent, I don't need nobody for nothing, for no reason. You're not that person either. Healthy church means that we're transparent, we're honest with one another, but people are afraid to do that in a church that's not healthy. Because for whatever reason, whether it's pride or whether you're afraid of what someone's going to do with that information, we just don't do it. 
And because of that, we don't really know this. We don't know this kind of community that Paul's talking about. In fact, if some of us are honest, it frightens us. Because we've been trained, that's not how you live your life. You have your church pocket, and you do church things, and you have church-type conversations in that pocket. And then you have your private life. And there's not a lot of overlap. And again, I'm not blaming people for being this way. If we haven't established a healthy church where people can feel safe being honest, knowing that everyone else cares about them, then what? How can we expect people to be that way? This also gets back to that idea of syncretism. When it was just a small number. But let me just tell you, in a healthy church, it just takes one unhealthy person who takes what you're sharing or hears about it and, and just whatever, gossips, says it with not an attitude of wanting to help, but instead of just, you know, I have information, I need to say it for no apparent reason, or I like to feel superior, so I want to talk about other people's problems. It just takes one. It just takes one. But God's people, and we get this right, it's a wonderful, beautiful, powerful thing. Let's continue in Nehemiah where he says, And I said, so he's, he's prayed, he's fasted, and now, he's, I mean, now we're about to see his prayer, read his prayer. He says, And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Sounds like Ezra. When, we, when Ezra became aware of, of the intermarrying. But here's the difference. I don't know why. It's just how the story's told. So we're not told why. But Ezra gets all the way to Jerusalem and then he hears about how they've broken the covenant. And it's a shock to him. Nehemiah, he's not even there yet. He's not even sure he'll ever be there. He's hundreds of miles away. Several months journey. And if he does go, he's not going to be surprised. He's going to know it's wrong. But their response is the same. Their response is, we've broken the covenant. We've got to fix it. The response is the same. It's like, it's not their sin. It's not those people. No. He realizes we've got we to fix what is broken 
But if we're going to fix what is broken, we need to know what the real problem is. We need to know. We need to stop blaming other things. We need to stop blaming other people. He's saying, he's acknowledging, Nehemiah is acknowledging that, look, I, Nehemiah could have said, you know what? Like Ezra could have said, I don't, I don't do what those guys do. But instead, he's, he's acknowledging that, you know what? Even though I don't do exactly what those guys do, even myself and my father's house have failed to live up to the standards that you set, God. Oh, we may be keeping those statutes, but we got a few over here we're not keeping. See, that's the struggle that sometimes happens in, in, in churches when we kind of spotlight certain sins and we can kind of feel kind of self-righteous. I'm not doing that. Yeah, you're not doing that. But are you following God's law perfectly in all other areas? Jesus knew you weren't. Paul knew you weren't. So you, you aren't. If you think you are, again, you could be Jesus. If so, please let me know. But it's probably you're just wrong. We've got to identify what the real problem is, and he gets right to it, it's the covenant. See, a lot of times when we deal with problems, we focus on symptoms. And we think the symptom is the problem. The symptom is a problem, okay? Make no mistake, the symptom is a problem. But it's not the problem. We want to see what the cause is We want to fix that. You see, sinful action is a problem, but it is not the problem. The problem is your sinful nature. The problem is your sense of selfishness and pride. The problem is what my heart and your heart would want to do on its own without Jesus Christ having changed it. That's the problem. Got to deal with that. I mean, if you go to the doctor and and you tell the doctor, I got a headache. I take some Tylenol. That'll be $20, please. Again, you may like it because guess what? You take those, the Tylenol and a lot of times headache's going to go away. Now, if the headache happens to be because there's a nail stuck in your head, it's probably not going to go away. But, you know. But you actually want the doctor, I hope you want the doctor to tell you why this is happening. To deal with the cause not just to treat the symptoms. Nehemiah knows it's the same thing Ezra knew. It's this covenant. He knows the importance of the covenant. 
And, and he's saying, you know, we need to do this. And, and he says, I, I, you know, the sins of the people of Israel, well, you know what? I'm going to confess them. I'm going to confess them because they're also my sins. As a, as a kid, you know, there's certain things growing up in the church and when your dad's pastor that, you know, you grow to love and hate. And when we used to go to, like, the midweek prayer meetings as kids, you know, we loved the fact that, you know, we were praying, but there were certain people that, you know, took 15 minutes to say to God what other people could say in two minutes. And so sometimes, like, in our prayer meetings, like, they would... They would kind of say, oh, you know, you guys break up into smaller groups. And part of the art of being the pastor's kid was to figure out how to get in the group with the shortest prayers <laughs> and to do it in a way that mom and dad knew you, that's not what you were trying to do, right? And I think about that, and I think about how for us, like, you know, Five minutes of prayer, ten minutes of prayer seems so long. But this is days. Days. I don't believe in like magic things, like if you pray, then magic magically God does stuff for you. But I do believe this. I believe things that we do like how we feel and what we think about things and, and whether we would pray and fast. I think it does reflect how we feel about something and I think it also reflects how committed we will be to making it right. I don't think that if we, that if we declared a you know, 24-hour or 48-hour fast that we pray for our church, that we pray that God would tear down the strongholds in our lives, between us, get rid of all the, the, the past baggage, the grudges, everything else, that the new people who've come, would, would, there would be bridges built, that, that we could fast for that. That if 48 hours, I'm not going to tell you that I believe that after that, we would all end that time holding hands, singing kumbaya, and being happy for the rest of our lives. But I will tell you this. People who would fast and pray for 48 hours, when that 48-hour period is done, they're going to they're gonna put every effort they can into doing what they, what they fasted about. It shows their commitment shows that this isn't just like, oh, that's a really good idea, pastor. Oh, yeah, that's, you know, you know, thanks. It's like, no. Fasting is this action that's connected to this commitment that demonstrates our passion, our understanding of how important that is. And, you know, we just have kind of lost this. 
And so we can have meetings after meetings. We can have committee after committee. I've served on way too many committees with the denomination and in other things. And, 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 and we can do all that and we can be well-intentioned. But showing up for a few meetings doesn't show commitment. Nehemiah is committed. He doesn't even know what God's going to ask him to do. But he's committed. This also shows us something kind of interesting too. The covenant is all that matters. And what God promises to do if they keep the covenant is to keep them together. That's all he promises. He promises he'll keep them together. Keep the covenant, I'll keep you together. You'll be my people. You see, other religions of that time, and even the way some people think about even Christianity today, is that God doesn't protect simply by keeping us together and, and staying as, as our God and we're his people, that they think he protects by, by building up you know, power, building up might, building up armies. That somehow, like, that God is going to, like, increase our, our you know, our, our, the land that we have. And, and that's how God protects. It's like, no. His people, it's about the covenant. And what the exile in Babylon had taught them is that you can keep the covenant hundreds of miles away. You don't have to be in Jerusalem to keep the covenant. And over a hundred years in a foreign land, God had kept them together because they kept the covenant. And why does God do things this way? I think a couple reasons. First of all, God doesn't want us to be trusting in the, the power structures of the world. He doesn't want us to think that we're safe because we got the bank account or we got the land, or we got the law, or we got, you know, somehow power and might. He wants us to trust in Him. It doesn't mean if you have those things that they're wrong, but they can become wrong. Because what we've seen in history, in big and small ways, at the individual Christian level, at the church level, at the denominational level, you know, at you know, God's people in a more kind of global sense, what we've seen is that when God blesses us with stuff, we start trusting in the stuff and we stop trusting in God. We start trusting like the people of Israel did in the temple and the sacrifices and we stop trusting in God. God says, no, if you're my people in this world, if we're in this covenant relationship, your trust is in me. Oh, sometimes I'll give you those things, and those things are going to be helpful. Eventually, the wall is going to be rebuilt. But your trust, your trust needs to be in me. And we know this. We know this happens in our own lives. 
And again, we've seen it happen again and again in different situations. He continues, he says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you are outcasts, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. That's what he's saying. This is the covenant. I'll bring you together. I'll hold you together. Not, I'm going to give you a big army with the best weapons. It says, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. What's happening here? What's happening is Nehemiah not only understands the covenant, He not only understands the problem and he wants to fix this problem, he also understands ultimately it's going to be the work of God. Ultimately, we're going to need God's grace, God's mercy. You see, Nehemiah could do all the right things. He, he could make all the right efforts. He could, he could do everything by the playbook. But ultimately, it's going to be God's mercy that's needed. You see, when, when, when we see someone who's, who's hurt, and someone that, that, you know, that there's some broken, something broken in their lives, and, and if we identify the problem, You see, it's not enough just to say like, well, if you do these five steps, everything will be good. And the reason is, is because usually, not always, but usually somewhere in what's broken, the things that we can try to help are things that involve the spiritual. Somewhere there's some issue with sin. Maybe... It's sin that they've, they've acknowledged as sin, but they can't let go of the guilt. Sometimes it's sin they haven't acknowledged at all. And they keep finding themselves in the same situations like the people of Israel. You see, if sin is the issue, God gives us a role to help But one thing you cannot do is you cannot forgive someone's sins. You can't forgive their sins. And if you can't just forgive their sins, if you can't forgive the sins they've made against God, you can't fix the main problem, which is to repair the covenant, to repair the relationship. In fact, you can't do what we know is required to do is that our hearts will be changed. 
You see, the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, Old Covenant law is outside. New Covenant law is written on our hearts. You can't do that. I can't do that. Don't try. Don't go home and try to write something on your heart because you'll end up in the ER and maybe dead. You can't do it. You can't change someone's nature. It's God. It's God's mercy. Nehemiah knows he's going to depend on God. And this last line that we're going to read makes what Nehemiah is saying, all of this, so much more powerful. Because he says this, Now I was cupbearer to the king. I was cupbearer to the king. And what does this tell us? If we're going to fix what's broken, it's going to cost us. He was cupbearer to the king. He was one of the king's most trusted advisors. He had a powerful position. And he didn't just get there accidentally. He, 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 he earned his way there. And this wasn't just any king. This was, you know, this was Artaxerxes. This was, this was the king of the most powerful empire at the time. It would have been easy for Nehemiah to not trust in God's mercy, but instead to, to trust in the wealth and power of Artaxerxes. Could have done that. It would have been easy for Nehemiah to say like, you know what? I got this really important position. I don't want to lose it because, you know, I can still help people from this position. So, we'll try to get somebody else to go. We know Artaxerxes has, has, has fought like political intrigue within his palace. He's had these revolts, including one, the most recent one, right around the place where Jerusalem is. Nehemiah knows it would be risky. If you're the most trusted advisor of the king, it would be risky to bring up something that would suggest or could be interpreted as that you have other motives or a different agenda. No. Nehemiah doesn't say, it's not my problem. He doesn't say, you know, I can help more from Susa than I can over there. Instead, he's about to do a very Jesus kind of thing. He's about to, to go and make the request that he be allowed to, in some sense, step down, leave Susa, and go to where the people are. It's what we see Jesus doing for us. We read that in Philippians 2. We, we see it in, in, in John 1 where it talks about, you know, Jesus doesn't just go, oh, those poor people, so many problems. Yeah, let, me send, let me send Michael. Let me send Gabriel. You know, Fred. He's a lesser known archangel. But let me send one of them. Right? No. He comes himself. He steps down. 
And that's what Nehemiah is going to do. He's this incredibly powerful, incredibly influential man. And he's willing to sacrifice. He's willing to risk. He's willing to pay the price so that he can fix what is broken. We, we like to like, think that when we see a problem, we can, we can help it, and it doesn't affect us. And there's probably some minor problems like that. But here, when we're dealing with you know, the people of God, when we're dealing with the, the, the things that either we're, we're dealing with the consequences of sin or we're still struggling with sin ourselves, it, it costs us. It involves risk. But it's done because it's who we are in Christ. Our brothers and sisters, our church, the kingdom, the sh revealing to the world of God's love, it's worth it. It's worth it. It's who we are. We take the risk so we can fix what is broken. Nehemiah is this great example. I love it. I'd love to read about and what he, what he did and how much he was willing to risk. And it's humbling because, you know, would I have done the same? I don't know. But we know, even though we may not be the most trusted advisors of the most powerful person in our world, we know this. God can help us to know each other's burdens. He can help us, and He can help us to, to seek and want to know how we can help. 